Our conversation today has been pushing in the direction of seeing this as a horrific symptom of a much deeper illness. The way in which we talk about sex in the church, the way we talk about power in the church, and maybe even more than the ways we talk about these things, the way that we live them out. This is Expanding Horizons. Candid conversations, passionate people, important issues. Produced by the Jesuit Institute, South Africa. Professor Patrick Hornbeck is the Chair of Theology at Fordham Jesuit University in New York. He has a PhD from Oxford looking at heresy, specifically the Wycliffeites in the late medieval English church. He teaches courses like Introduction to Theology, the Protestant Reformation, Religion and Law, and also Religion and Sexuality. I am Russell Pollitt, and this is Expanding Horizons. Patrick, thank you very much for agreeing to speak to us. Russell, it's great to be here with you. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, your family, your interests, your hobbies. So I grew up in the southwest of the United States, in Arizona. And I lived there for most of my life. I moved to Washington, D.C. for my undergraduate years. I lived in England for about five years. And then since 2007, I've been living in New York. And it's been a tremendous privilege to teach and work um, and live around the community at Fordham, which, as you said, is the Jesuit University there in New York. And so I love travel, classical music, and I follow U.S. politics and world politics, which these days, I think, um, keeps us all pretty busy. Or depressed. Or depressed. So, Patrick, you're here in South Africa, and you've been looking specifically at the question of the sexual abuse crisis in the Catholic Church in the United States and its intersection with law, because you're also a student of law. How did you go from theology to law? That's a great question. And I discovered it was actually something I backed my way into. So about 10 years into my academic career, I sort of took a pause and looked back, maybe even Ignatian style, and looked at what I had been doing. And I realized that those first couple of books I'd written about heretics were about heretics who were on trial for their beliefs. And then I'd gone on and I had done some work on people leaving churches in the U.S. and how churches responded to that. And it turns out that, at least in the Catholic world, it's canon law that handles those sorts of questions. So I realized that I was on this journey anyway. If I hadn't become a theologian when I was in my 20s, I probably would have become an attorney. And these days in U.S. society, so many debates about religion intersect with the public square, whether that's about the rights of conscience, physicians who may not want to perform certain medical procedures, florists who don't want to cater to same-sex weddings, for instance. Those sorts of issues, freedom of religion issues, and then sadly, these crises concerning sexual abuse, not just in the Catholic Church. All of these are things that, in my country at least, people tend to see through the prism of law. And so I wanted to be able to write about those religious issues in ways that lawyers and public policy people could understand. And I wanted to try to bring a more nuanced sense of what religion is really like into those public policy debates. We often sort of say, well, the church and the state are separate. You seem to be saying they may not be as separate as what we think. Well, you know what's funny is in the U.S. there's this notion of the wall of separation between church and state. And that's a phrase that maybe some of our listeners have heard. And so I say to my students, you know, show me where in the U.S. Constitution that phrase is. So they go hunting for it. They go trying to find it. And, of course, it's not actually in the U.S. Constitution. It's a phrase in a letter written by Thomas Jefferson to a Baptist church in the state of Connecticut in 1801. 
Hmm. And so our founding generation weren't even on the same page when it came to what does it mean to have a government that is separate from the church, yet at the same time recognizing that the vast majority of citizens are themselves religious and make public policy decisions and they cast their votes in large part, or at least to a certain extent, based on what their religious faith urges them to do. Hmm. Fascinating. You've been speaking about this crisis in the Catholic Church as a twin crisis, the crisis of abuse and the crisis of concealment. And you've been looking at where does the secular legal authority step in and how the church should be handling this from a judicial way as well. Let's unpack that a little bit, these two crises. Just give us a bit of context. So I think it's really important to separate the horrific reality of sexual abuse, whether it happens in the church or outside the church, whether the victims are children or whether they're adults. It's important to separate that absolutely horrific reality from a second also horrific reality, which is when institutions either turn a blind eye or they outright take steps to conceal what had happened. And I think, at least in my country, it's what church leaders have done to conceal abuse that's been much more problematic. It's been much more devastating to people's faith, to people's confidence in the church. Because I think there's an understanding that, sad and awful as it is, sexual abuse is a dark side of the human condition. Hmm. It happens in families. It happens in secular organizations. It happens in other religious organizations. But when it comes to the Roman Catholic Church, the thing that has led so many Catholics to be disillusioned and disappointed isn't that some church employees, lay people, and ordained people have committed abuse. That's terrible. What's really harmed people's confidence is when the institution has put its own preservation, its own reputation above what happened to these victim survivors. It is exactly the kind of analysis that I seem to make as well, that we had whatever happened in the early 2000s, we had the great break of that story in Boston, which caused huge upheaval in the church. Then the American bishops met in Dallas. They came out with the Dallas Charter. And it was almost like we're over this bump. And now with what happened with the bigger story blowing in the last 18 months, two years even, of the concealment of the Spicenia people in the church who were well-respected mm-hmm. has really deflated people and caused a lot of damage. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think there was a sense among some folks in the U.S. at least that when the Boston Globe began to publish its reports in 2002 and the church took what looked like very decisive steps at that time, people were disillusioned and disappointed, but they thought that the church had at least taken some steps to deal with the crisis. One of the things that happened after the Dallas Charter, as you mentioned, is that even though reports of abuse continue to come in, some people said, well, actually, most of these reports are historic. They have to do with things that took place in the 1970s and the 1980s or maybe even the 1990s, but there are fewer reports since after 2002. And one chilling question, Russell, I think we have to ask ourselves is, is that because there's been less abuse? Is it because one of the psychological realities, particularly when the victims are children, one of those realities is that people take years or decades to come forward? Mm. And so I think there was a sense in the U.S. that maybe this problem was in hand 
And the bombshell that you're referring to, I think, is that in 2018, there was a grand jury in our state of Pennsylvania that published a report with a 1,000 alleged acts of abuse, more than 300 clergy perpetrators. And, and this was, I think, the thrust of the report, a systematic culture of concealment by the church, by church leaders, by bishops, archbishops, and other folk like that. And so some people have been referring to this as the next wave of the crisis. And I think it's precisely because the church said, we're taking steps to deal with this, that when people found out that maybe those steps hadn't been effective as they could have been, or maybe the problem was worse than it ever seemed to be, that's been something that's been really devastating. So in a recent poll, 37% of U.S. Catholics say that as a result of these twin crises that we've been talking about, they've begun to question whether they can remain in good conscience as members of the church. It looked as if they were taking decisive steps to deal with this. And a lot of this was around policy mm -hmm. and rules. Mm -hmm. And you had the one strike and you out applied after the Dallas Charter. And there's a lot of talk always about putting more process or policy in place. I'm not so sure about that. Yeah. I want to dig more deeply into systemic issues. Mm -hmm. In my own thinking about this, we have a real problem when it comes to human sexuality in the church. Mm -hmm. I think that that recent book by Martel, whatever one wants to say about the quality, points to one thing. There is hypocrisy when it comes to issues around sexuality. I think there's structural things, the way that power works in the church, that need to be unpacked. Your thoughts about these things, because I'm not sure that policy alone is going to get us out of this crisis. Right. So I think it's the word alone that you just used that's the right one. So, so policies and protocols, when it comes to something like sexual abuse, they're a necessary but not sufficient condition. In other words, if the church doesn't have those sorts of policies and protocols, when things do go wrong, people won't know exactly what they're supposed to do. So it's necessary. I don't want to say that it's bad. But Russell, what I think you're raising in your question that's really important is, are those steps enough? Should church leaders, should ordinary people in the pews, and maybe just as importantly, should people outside the church who are interested in the welfare of one of these great social institutions of the children and the women and the men who are committed to the care of the church, is this enough for them? And I think the answer is probably no. The reason I think the answer is probably no is that as I continue to study this particular issue, it seems to me that the deeper crisis is a crisis of maturity when it comes to topics of sexuality and power. And one of the things that we've known for decades is that human sexuality can be used in all sorts of different ways. It can be used as a phenomenal source of union and love and mutual support and all of the things that people in fulfilling sexual relationships experience. But it can also be used tremendously for destructive ends. And one of the ways in which human beings abuse that is by using sexuality as a force of dominance, as a way of showing other people that they are underneath them, that they have control over them. And so I think that until there's a climate of candor and conversation and open discussion about sexuality itself, not just in the church, but in our broader societies, I think we're doomed to remain kind of immature when it comes to these sorts of topics. And so I think that what has to get added onto those policies and protocols is a sense of how do members of the church, how do members of society talk about one of the most basic things about what it means to be human? 
I want to focus there on the church specifically, because I think that in the church, there is a kind of secrecy around sexuality. We've got priests or celibates, and and we don't even talk about that. I mean, in formation houses, very often, I'm astounded. And if I think back of my own formation, Mm. we had very few conversations about sexuality and living celibacy and things like that. Mm -hmm. There seems to me to be a real split in our thinking about sexuality in the church. And it's almost as if, dare I say it, we have failed to even begin to dialogue with science as science begins to show us as we learn more about human sexuality. Well, let me ask you this. So in that formation experience you had, the other vows, poverty and obedience, did they get talked about? Of course. And Often. more, right, yes, than, than sexuality. Absolutely. And so I think, you know, many of our listeners here may have this experience that people find it really hard to talk about sex. And that's true particularly, I think, in the church. Because the church has so many rules or strictures or concerns or even the sense that various forms of sexuality could be taboo. So I don't know how many Catholics in this country want to think about the fact that priests and nuns and other folks are also sexual persons just like they themselves are. That's not a thing the church has been good at talking about. And because I think it's fair to say that the church for so many centuries has held up one particular model of human sexuality, meaning abstinence until heterosexual marriage, and then sex in marriage in the context of a desire to procreate primarily, that's a, I don't even want to say it's a really high bar because that would kind of imply that that is in fact the goal that everyone should have. But what I do want to say is it's a very particular kind of standard. And so for people who do not find that their experiences match up to that kind of standard, it could be very difficult to turn to church leaders or family members or friends and talk if they are afraid that their sexual experience or their sexual desires are going to be judged negatively. Deeply rooted in the early church, though, let's even push back, Mm -hmm. is there somehow this idea that sexuality is carnal, it's of this world, and therefore we must subjugate that or whatever word you want to use, because to be holy and to be a person of faith is somehow to get out of that realm. And in many places we see even, well, it's actually better to be celibate and to stay away from sexuality because it traps you in a world that you don't want to be trapped. And it kind of becomes a clash between having a relationship with God. and We have a theological problem here. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. And it's a problem that, like other theological problems, goes back to the cultural context out of which Christianity comes. And so, as many people know, Christianity is a fusion of Jewish traditions and also the Greek and Roman philosophical context, the world that St. Paul and many of the other early church leaders were writing for. And so there was at least one dominant strain in that Greco-Roman context that said that we have to separate the spiritual from the physical. That, in fact, you have to deny the physical in order to access the spiritual. And that wasn't the only perspective in early Christianity. It was the one that ended up winning out over a long period of time, and perhaps most significantly with a guy called Augustine of Hippo, one of the great African church leaders in Christian history. And for folks who've read Augustine's autobiography, The Confessions, 
they know that Augustine himself was no stranger to sexuality. He mm. seems very much to have struggled with his own sexual desires, living into them for a while in, it seems, kind of unhealthy ways, and then maybe later on in life denying them in rather unhealthy ways. And so it's from Augustine and from his notion of original sin and original sin being transmitted by desire, including by sexual desire, that we get this notion that sexuality is for marriage. And even then, married people, Augustine said, should be really careful. They shouldn't have too much pleasure in procreating and perpetuating the human species. And so we've been stuck with that legacy for many, many centuries. And it's one that only got more complicated when in the 10th or 11th century, the Western church began to mandate celibacy for most priests. And so in a way as well, one wonders about that injunction in the book of Genesis that God saw all that God had made and thought it was very good. And yet somehow in the human mind, some things were a lesser good than others, which That's, I guess is something we regularly do, human beings. Yeah, we're pretty good at that. I think it got complicated. I don't want to walk us through all of the history, but the sure. other point to focus on is that when you get to the 12th and 13th centuries, to these great European theologians like Thomas Aquinas, for yes. instance, they begin to develop a way of thinking about this that they begin to call the natural law. Mm. And the idea is, it's actually, I think, not, not a bad idea. It's kind of an Ignatian idea, really, which is that you look out at the world and you discover the plan of God for the world written on the world as it is. And the trouble with natural law thinking, as we see it practiced today, is that I think some modern natural lawyers are still stuck in the 13th century. Mm. So for Aquinas and for people like Aquinas, they're operating out of the best biology of their time. And that's a biology that says, among other things, that women are imperfectly formed human beings, that only men are perfectly formed. Um, that all sexual desire is supposed to be heterosexual, that there's a particular ethic around the use of sexuality. And science in particular, over the course of the last 50 years, maybe especially the last 25 years, has begun to show that earlier models for human sexuality just aren't factually correct. Hmm. And so the Catholic Church has a pretty good track record. Well, it has a good track record of getting it right in the end. So for instance, Darwin, wasn't approved of by the church when he was published. But over time, the church has come to accept that evolutionary theory and faith are not, in fact, irreconcilable. And so I think when it comes to sexuality, one of the things that needs to happen is that the church needs to continue a really old tradition, which is learning from the world around it, reading the plan of God as it is written on the world. And that means taking the best possible counsel from scientists and psychologists and all of the other people who probably know more about sexuality than folk who aren't meant to be experiencing much of sexuality. You point to two very important things there, that good science and good theology are kind of necessary. Absolutely. You, you cannot have good theology without good science, mm -hmm. and you cannot have good science without good theology, which I think is very important. And that's why the conversation with science is so necessary. The other thing you point to is we get this idea that tradition is stuck, that what happened once in a place must happen everywhere. And tradition is not something that simply is concretized, but tradition is something that grows and expands as the world grows and expands and we come to deeper understandings. And very often I think there's also this clash in understanding of tradition. 
Yeah, that's a great point. So let me tell you a story, Russell. And when I'm debating with some of my students or other people who I meet who have a maybe a different mindset when it comes to these sorts of questions, one of the responses I most often get is, but the church has always taught thus and such. In the same way that there are people who will tell you that the form of the Latin mass is the best because it's what the church has always done. And mm -hmm. that we need to continue to live into the way that Christianity has typically done things. And that's a good argument if it were historically true. Mm. But the Latin mass, at least as it's been experienced for the last few decades, is from the 1500s. Mm. It's not from the 500s or the 300s or the 100s. Jesus and his apostles spoke Aramaic and Hebrew and Greek. They didn't speak Latin. Mm. The translations that we use of the Bible, of liturgical texts, they all have a history. And so when people say that they are being traditional, the question I always want to ask is, why freeze that particular moment in time and say that's why or that's the point at which the tradition was most full? And I don't want to argue that there's any moment at which the tradition is most full. I want to argue instead for a more organic model. Things develop over time. Mm. And as you were just saying, the church has learned from the world around it. And I don't think that's a thing that Christians should be afraid of. I think that Christianity is a tradition that precisely because it listened to the best minds of the Greek and Roman world of the first and second and third centuries, has shown that it's a tradition amenable to learning from the cultures around it, even if that makes some people a little scared sometimes. And even if that means sometimes adapting things from those cultures and making it part of the church's worldview. Absolutely, that's right. And so the Second Vatican Council is just one example of this, but the Second Vatican Council at least implicitly overruling the notion that there's no salvation outside the church. That gets framed in official church discourse as an example of, quote, theological development, unquote. Hmm. But I think common sense would suggest that that's theological revision. Hmm. It's theological change. Things really do change in the church, even when the church isn't always keen to admit that. And so some people will say that revising Catholics un Catholic understandings of human sexuality would lead to a revolution, and that may be true. But that's not a thing that's new. Christianity has done this before. And for some reason, this particular topic, maybe because it deals with the most intimate parts of our lives, it deals with some of the most conflicted parts of our lives, we're not good at talking about it, so we're particularly bad at talking about how to make change. Sexuality is one thing which, in these few minutes, we've really tried to unpack, needs a deeper, fuller, more honest conversation. I want to just turn the conversation slightly, and I don't think these things are unrelated. The next one is ecclesiastical structure, or ecclesiology. Sure. The current structure of the church, and how the power really moves in those structures, and how maybe we also need to sit back and say, okay, is it time that we faced some of these issues head on in terms of the relationship between bishops and priests and bishops and laity and priests and laity and so forth. And in my sense, get rid of this kind of ladder or level thinking, which is so often one that we slip into. Yeah, I think that's right. And the connection, of course, immediately with sexuality is the populations of people you just mentioned are all men. Mm. And they are all at least theoretically celibate men. 
Hmm. And since 2005, when the Vatican put out an instruction saying that gay men are not to be admitted to seminaries and religious orders, they are also presumptively heterosexual celibate men. So that's a pretty thin slice of the human experience just to start with. But in an environment where it is so taken as a given that people are supposed to think of themselves that way or they're supposed to think of other people that way, there's already a little bit of turning a blind eye or double dealing or secrecy or whatever word you want to use that's built into that system. I think it's one of the reasons why some of the best thinkers in this area have said that church officials sometimes constitute what looks like an old boys club or a Mm. boys network of Mm. some sort. And so what's going to be tricky for the Catholic Church is that because the official theologies of ordination restrict priesthood and serving as a bishop to men, the question that you just raised, which is about inclusivity and bringing other voices into the conversation, that's hobbled from the very beginning because a full 50% plus of the human race is excluded, at least from sacramental leadership. And so one of the things that I think we need to think about is are there ways of, you know, if we have to maintain this rule about sacramental leadership, are there ways of saying that there are other forms of exercising responsibility or authority or decision-making power in the church? And just last week, Pope Francis appointed seven women religious to the Congregation for Religious, the first time that's happened in the Vatican. And so I think the Pope is taking some baby steps in this direction. But your overall point, Russell, is right, that if church structures are always and ever more hierarchical, I just don't think people are going to get to that place of real maturity in talking about any hot-button issue, whether it's sexuality or something else. In the current model, if we started to undo what people do, so let me give you an example. If we said priests are only going to do a sacramental ministry and the finances of a parish are going to be run by lay experts and the pastoral direction of the parish is going to be set by people who live there and are in the know, and we're going to include people on the pastoral team, women, younger people, older people who are not ordained. Do you think this is the beginning of trying to break down the structure or do you think there needs to be something much deeper and much more, for lack of a better word, revolutionary that needs to happen? Well, I think there's a difference between what's theoretically a good idea and what's practically possible. Mm. So what's interesting to me is all of the things that you just named, at least in the U.S., would be pretty heavy lifts for lots of Catholic parishes and dioceses. So there was a controversy a couple of decades, maybe a century ago in the U.S. about what they called lay trusteeship, Mm. exactly what you just described, where lay people have the power of the purse in a parish. And the Vatican shut it down in a pretty significant kind of way. And so I suppose the thing that I would want to put back is to say, I think there needs to be a complete reorientation to ideas about leadership, ideas about authority, ideas about where is the spirit moving. Those are the things that Vatican II was suggesting 50 years ago, and they've never really fully been implemented. Mm. But how does that get done practically? And I think that if those who are looking for reform in the church only aim at those sort of broader, more abstract, bigger solutions, Mm. it's less likely that there'll be achievement there. So one of the questions becomes, within the parameters of the current system, What kinds of experiments or tweaks can be put in place to maybe show the church that it is possible to do some of these things and yet not betray what people think is essential about being Catholic?
this milieu that we live in, and especially, I guess, maybe felt more acutely in the United States, where, you know, every day it seems issues of abuse are very much part of the mainstream Catholic media, but also much of the secular media, New York Times, Washington Post. It kind of creates a situation where people feel deflated, Mm -hmm. where they feel depressed. You've mentioned people are leaving. You're working with young people in a theology department. What impact is this having on them? That's a great question. And I think you're entirely right to connect this with the reality of people leaving organized religious institutions, at least in my country, in substantial numbers. And that's not distinctive to the Catholic Church at all. The mainline Protestant traditions, a number of the evangelical traditions, they've all seen declines over a period of time. And so a couple of years ago, a colleague of mine at Fordham and I spent about a year interviewing people who either were on the verge of leaving or had left the Catholic Church. And the thing that we heard more often than not, the reason that they left, was a question about authenticity and a question about hypocrisy, where people would ask, how can the church do X or say X, but actually do Y? And so I think that we're living in a time, again, at least in my country, where authenticity and the avoidance of hypocrisy are so valued in our leaders. And I think it's precisely because so few of our leaders are authentic in those particular regards. So many of our students at Fordham come in, they're aged 18, 19. They have already decided to say no to organized religious institutions, Catholic or otherwise, because they think that these institutions are irredeemable. Hmm. They think that these institutions have lost some of what they are supposed to do. And the challenge is these aren't people who have turned their back on believing in God. What they have begun to say, though, is that the risk of doing faith, spirituality, religion on their own is worth taking because the institutions are so compromised. And so when you see a church leader, when we have a church leader, or even a secular leader, for that matter, who stands up and speaks with a kind of moral clarity, I'm thinking in my country, one of the most famous preachers right now is the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, a guy named Michael Curry. Hmm. Your listeners may know him because he gave that sermon at the wedding of Prince Harry in England about a year and a half ago. The reason that people loved him is that he spoke from the heart, he didn't hold back, he named God, and then he didn't have it be highfalutin, and it wasn't about his own authority, and it wasn't about the institution. It was about helping people make a connection with that reality that is greater than any of us. And so I think that's the dilemma, is people long for that. I would want to argue as a theologian that we are built to long for that kind of connection with a reality that is ultimate. But right now, at least in the U.S., church institutions aren't good at delivering on that promise. Mm. And that must also seep into the personal as well. I guess I'm a young priest in one sense. I'm an old priest in another sense. But, you know, at times in the last couple of years, I felt rather depressed, deflated, maybe even with very little hope for what's happening in the Catholic Church. And I also understand at times that there are people who do things that are wrong. Many of those people, for example, are sick, one could say. I mean, it's an illness. Absolutely. It can be. It can also be domination. Yeah. On the other hand, I think the thing that deflates me or depresses me the most and leaves me feeling very little hope is that I don't see often the will to change Mm. in a way that I would expect it to change. And then you start to ask yourself, what am I doing? And what's the meaning of all this, et cetera, et cetera. 
I mean, as a professional theologian dealing with this stuff each day, there must be a personal toll on you and your colleagues as well. Yeah, that's completely true. Let me just tell you a story about that. So you mentioned, Russell, that part of my work right now is thinking about the relationship between the law and theology around this abuse question. So because of that, this summer, I've read most of the court cases dealing with child sexual abuse in the Catholic Church and in other institutions in the U.S. going back about 30 years. And I'm a generally pretty hardworking guy. And what I realized was that after about two hours every day of working on this stuff, I just didn't have the will to go on. Mm. And I couldn't figure out what was happening with me. This would happen day after day after day. And I was getting frustrated because I needed to get through all this material. And one day my spouse said to me, you know what you're reading, right? And I remembered, or it hit me in a much more visceral way, that when you read these court cases, when you read what people are capable of doing to other people, whether it's abuse or concealment, it's depressing. Mm. It gives you a window into some of the darkest parts of the human experience. And so, yeah, we, we feel that. Those of us who work in this area feel that. And even more so, those who work with flesh and blood victim survivors who sit in front of you mm. uh, when you're doing pastoral care or counseling. And so the question for me becomes, is there hope in this? Mm. And what does hope look like? So is hope about preventing it from ever happening again? That's not a bad goal. I think it's a necessary goal to have. And does that mean from the secular side, from the legal side, maybe having a little bit more intervention by the secular sphere in the operations of religious institutions? But prevention, that's not hope. That's just what people should expect of each other. Mm. I think the bigger question is, is there an opportunity in this moment of disappointment and despair for people to look around and say, we need to reevaluate how we relate to each other? And we need to ask some really hard questions about what our tradition tells us good relationships look like. And the other side of that may be something that looks a little bit more like the reign of God, but it's hard to see a lot of the time. Mm. It strikes me, and this gives me hope in a weird way, that much of the current crisis, it's not really, and this is the depressing side of it, it's not really the authorities in the church that have brought this to light and have dealt with it, but that people themselves are feeling a certain courage and a certain strength to begin to say, we're no longer going to stand for this. And so in a sense, there's a hope there that maybe people are starting to reclaim some of their place in the church, even though it comes from a very painful place. Yeah, or people might be so angry and they may be so upset that it's not about reclaiming their place. It's about making sure that that can just never happen again. Mm. And I think what gets tricky in this conversation is I think the church, at least church institutions and church officials, have often let so many people down that I'm not sure it's a good moment for church officials to say, trust us again. But the question has to be put out there. What would the conditions for a renewal of trust actually look like? What would have to happen for people to trust again? And I think for me, that has to mean doing something other than trusting in father or bishop or whoever as someone who is above me, as someone who's lording a sort of authority maybe over me. And I think we have to learn to be people together, to be more equal to each other. And so one of the questions I want to ask from the law side of this is, can the court system, can the legal system, can prosecutors deliver that? 
Mm-hmm. I think what the legal system and prosecutors can deliver is the necessary change in institutions to hopefully prevent abuse and its concealment from happening again. Mm. But going back to what we were saying minutes ago, that's the beginning. That's the necessary precondition for institutions, whether religious or otherwise, to reinvent those relationships of trust between people and among people. Yeah, and that credibility crisis is something that will only really start to, in one way or another, be erased when that happens. There's almost a cyclical thing here. And I'm not sure that we've always got that. I mean, to stand up and say, this has happened in the past, but you can trust us, we're going to deal with it. Well, actually, you didn't deal with it in the past. What gives us that sense that you are now? And so this kind of fine line and cooperation between the law and various other means slowly starts to build that trust again because words no longer are going to do that. And I think the right word there, Russell, is slowly. One of the things that's been hard, I think, for a lot of Catholics and other believers in the U.S. to stomach is that when these revelations came out, very often local bishops or other religious leaders would would hold these services, masses of healing and forgiveness. And I think that that comes from a good place. There's a desire to do something pastorally for people. But I suppose the question that needs to be raised there is forgiveness on whose timetable? Mm. It can't simply be a church leader after how many ever years of whatever may have happened saying, okay, we're going to get this in hand now and we're going to get it right like we didn't do before. I think those sorts of initiatives are good starting points. I think a lot of people are not yet near forgiveness. And one of the things I always learned is forgiveness is a good and holy thing, but there's also that question of contrition and of change and what does it take for someone to truly rebuild trust. And if the institutional church has lost that trust over 40 or 50 years, I hope it won't take 40 or 50 years, but it's not going to take four or five months. Hmm. It seems to me we're entering into a time where a deep self-reflection is needed. We've been very good in the church at analyzing problems in the world, speaking out about political situations, even a lot of the work we're doing with migrants and refugees, et cetera, et cetera. But a real critical self-reflection is what is needed right now. And I wonder to myself, do we have the insight to see that? And are we willing to embark upon that because I suspect it's a hard journey? Yeah. And who is the we in that? Because I think church leaders are a different we than church members, lay people. And they're a different we than members of the public. And they're a different we, again, than the folks who are responsible for our legal system. I want to throw church leaders into that yeah, and professional theologians. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that what I would want to say is the self-reflection cannot just be what are we specifically going to do about child sexual abuse mm. and preventing it from recurring. I mean, that's absolutely essential. That's just the given. It's the starting point. But I think our whole conversation today has been sort of pushing in the direction of seeing this as a horrific symptom of a much deeper illness. Mm. And the deeper illness seems to be the way in which we talk about sex in the church, the way we talk about power in the church, and maybe even more than the ways we talk about these things, the way that we live them out. Because if we say we want to be egalitarian and we want to include people and so on and so forth, but if our actions reveal something different then all of that talk's actually going to make the problem worse rather than making it better. Mm. And so I think that critical self-reflection that you're talking about 
can't just be people like you and me and bishops and whoever sitting around having a conversation. I think what it also needs to be is concrete actions to show that things should be different. Could clergy be formed differently? Mm. Could parishes in their adult education classes be willing to grapple with the real complexities of human sexuality? And that raises a deeper question, or a more challenging question at least, because they probably would have to buck some kinds of church authority in order to do that. Mm. And so because the Catholic Church is a hierarchical church, part of that leadership is going to have to come from the top. And with all respect to our bishops and other church leaders, these are people who are also formed in a system where those things weren't talked about. Mm. So it has to be hard for them, too. Mm. There's these little glimpses of hope at times. For example, the Synod on the Amazon and the framing of the question around a married priesthood. That maybe begins to open the door and sort of almost say, okay, this is a little step forward in starting to unearth these issues, for example, around sexuality and the church's understanding of things. So let me just play devil's advocate for a second there, mm. right? So with regard to the Synod on the Amazon, is it that the church is willing to explore married priests in that region because it's a good idea? Or is the church willing to explore married priests in that region because, frankly, otherwise there wouldn't be that many priests? Mm. And so one of the things that I'm struck by is that some of the moves in the Roman Catholic Church over the last five years that seem to push us in this direction seem to be more about accepting a sort of second best compromise because sometimes the ideal can't be achieved. And so mm. what's really interesting to think about in Amoris Laetitia, Pope Francis talks a little bit about the openness of the church to non-heterosexual folks, LGBTQI plus folks. But that openness is predicated on the idea that these folks can't do any better, that we actually are kind of stuck being who we are, and maybe the church should just say, well, that's the best that these folks can do. Mm. So that technically in academic talk is called a theology of compromise, the idea that the church should validate something because it's just not possible for it to be any other way. This makes all of this like a disability mm. rather than an authentic way of being human. And so I want to applaud what's happening in the Synod on the Amazon. I want to applaud those kinds of conversations. But if they're based still on this logic that there's an ideal and that there's a second best option, I don't know that actually gets us out of the problem. Mm. And yet there's a contradiction there too, because even though there's this beginning to talk about it, and I agree with you because of the necessity, on the other hand, without much conversation, we have in the last number of years going back to the papacy of John Paul II, been ordaining married men, Absolutely. especially those who have, for lack of a better word, fleed the Anglican communion because they didn't like some of the developments there. Right, which, just note, are also developments related to sexuality, ordination yes. of women, acceptance of LGBTQI folks and same-sex marriage. So, yeah, no, I think that's part of this soul-searching that you're talking about right. because mm -hmm. these are the sorts of moves that my students, who we were talking about a few minutes ago, They'd look at this, and that's the kind of place where that label of hypocrisy gets used, and probably justifiably. Patrick, my last question to you is, in your work, how do you see yourself as a theologian, as even a lawyer, expanding the horizons of hope? You know, Russell, in this particular topic, it's a really tough one. We were talking a few minutes ago about what does it mean even to have hope, and I'll confess to you and to our listeners, this is a topic that's deeply depressing. And it's one where it's very easy to fall into despair. 
And so in these two roles that I have as a law student and as a theology professor, I think there's something that each of them brings to the table. And on the one hand, there's the question about how society at large can begin to take action when some social institutions seem not to be able to fully police themselves. And I don't think that's an ideal scenario. I don't think it's ideal when you have prosecutors coming into the church and unearthing things that the church should have reported. But maybe sometimes it's necessary when the church doesn't take its own steps. So there is some hope for me there, even though it's not ideal, and even though it may not be what some church leaders would want, that there's hope that people outside the Catholic Church are able to help the church, maybe even against its will sometimes, take responsibility. But I think that deeper question is the one that comes up on the theological side. How can people genuinely relate to one another as human beings created in the image of God. And that's where my faith is grounded, is the idea that people are, in fact, all created in the image of God. We have to recognize that image in each other. I wish I could say I have a lot of hope on this particular topic at this particular moment. And I want to believe that there are so many people of goodwill that if only people like me and you and others can empower them to speak their truth and to speak candidly, that may be the place that hope can arise again. Professor Patrick Hornbeck, Chair of Theology at Fordham University, New York. Thank you very much for your time and for being willing to have this conversation with us here on Expanding Horizons. Thanks so much, Russell. Please comment and subscribe to our podcast for more candid conversations, passionate people and important issues. Expanding Horizons is produced by the Jesuit Institute South Africa with music and sound by Francis Tucson. This episode was presented by Russell Pollitt. Visit us at www.jesuitinstitute.org.za.